Today on God is Open, we are going to be talking about the state of early Christianity. We're going to talk about the various groups that were in existence. We're going to start with the groups in early Judaism, and then we are going to expand that to the various religious groups in ancient Rome, in the Hellenized culture, and then we're going to talk about various groups in Christianity, which were vying for power. In early Judaism, there were four main groups of people. There were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Zealots. The Pharisees are the first group we'll be talking about. They were made up of basically your fundamentalist type. These were the people who believed the Bible. They were dedicated to the Bible. They studied the Bible. And a lot of times they get this uh, false uh, picture of them that they were all hypocrites. But that's not actually what they were. That's what Jesus called them. A lot of Pharisees tended to build rules upon rules in order to not violate laws of the Old Testament. And so you get a sense that they were almost hyper-legalistic. But these were your Bible believers, your standard fare. These are the people that also appealed to the common man. These are your itinerant preachers, uh, your local uh, rural city preachers. These are the people that the common man respected and listened to for religious advice. If Jesus were to be classified in one of these four groups, he would be classified as a Pharisee. He taught the law. He taught people to follow the law. He didn't necessarily agree with the things that the Pharisees, the other Pharisees that they said. But uh, notice his treatment of them. He says, do not uh, do what they do, but do what they say. So Jesus did acknowledge that the Pharisees did have some truth behind them, and Jesus himself could be classified as a Pharisee. The second group is the Sadducees. The Sadducees are particularly noted by both the Bible and Josephus because they did not believe in immortality of the soul. They believed basically in annihilationism. Once someone dies, they are dead for good. The closest thing to the Sadducees that we might have in the modern world are the academic types, the intellectual types. And it's not necessarily that the Sadducees had anti-biblical views, but they had the non-popular views that wasn't embraced by society, much like Christian academics in today's world. And this belief appealed to those with a lot of power. But Josephus writes that once in power, in order to uh, curry favor with the local populations, a lot of Sadducees had to pretend that they actually had the belief systems of the Pharisees. Uh, Sadducees are also noted to be minimalists in keeping the law. Only what the law says is the only stuff that they do. And they didn't take very well to all these additional rules and regulations that were imposed by the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, of course, were the ones who enjoyed popular support. The Sadducees are noted in the Bible for their opposition of Jesus. What Jesus represented to the Sadducees was an overthrow of the existing order. Jesus was riling up the people, and, and Jesus had the potential to become as so many before him, as a leader 
of an insurrection against Rome. And so the Sadducees, they wanted to keep their power. They wanted to keep Israel in good terms with the Roman Empire. They didn't want another slaughter as had happened on so many occasions before. And then uh, again later, once the Jews finally do rebel, Jerusalem's wiped out, the temple's destroyed. So they're on very fragile ground, and Jesus represents, you know, shaking up the status quo. He's a threat to their power. He's a threat to the common man because of Roman retaliation. And they just don't agree with his theology in the least. One group that held particular appeal for following Jesus were the Zealots. Now, the Zealots sought to overthrow the Roman Empire. They were under the opinion that if they started a revolution, a rebellion, that God would intervene in history on their side. Uh, the Zealots represented apocalypticism. They represented God establishing a new order on earth. And they thought that they had a hand in making this all happen. Of course, we read in Jesus. Jesus uh, was not a zealot. He actually advocated that people do not resist the government. In Jesus' theology, the government would be overthrown by God without the help of Israel. Probably for this reason, Jesus' career lasted as long as it did. He wasn't advocating open rebellion. He wasn't advocating that Israel rebels. And so when Jesus is finally killed, you know, what is the thing that Judas betrayed about Jesus? Uh, Bart Ehrman, a biblical scholar, speculates that uh, Judas revealed to the Roman authorities that Jesus was an insurrectionist, that he was planning this rebellion against Rome. And that fits the story. That fits, uh, you know, kind of what would prompt the leaders of Jerusalem at that time to execute Jesus. The last Jewish group that we are going to talk about are the Essenes. Now, the Essenes were into aestheticism, and you don't read very much about the Essenes in the New Testament. That's because they were isolationists. They liked to go out in the wilderness to form communities out there and live the aesthetic life. And by that, it's basically a self-imposed poverty where they disdain material wealth, material goods, eating good things. And they, they led a very stoic life of contemplation. And this is very reminiscent of the pagan philosophers. When we read about the life of Plotinus, he kind of lives in this way, the neglect of the body. And we read in Paul, you know, that's one of his concerns, that people are trying to press this neglect of the body, this this humility, as it's translated in a lot of translations, but it's this aestheticism, and Paul is pushing against this. He's pushing against this uh, introspective life. It's very interesting to read Colossians 2, and who is Paul addressing this about? Now, it could be the Essenes that he's addressing, people who don't want to touch and taste this world, but it very much more likely is the Gentile pagan philosophers who live in the exact same way that the Essenes. It's hard to imagine that the Essenes weren't influenced by Greek philosophy and Greek asceticism in the way that they 
held their practices. If you read about their baptism rites, their baptism rites sound pretty much just like the mystery religion rites, the rites of the Greek cults. So those are the four main Jewish groups. Uh, there's probably some overlaps. Probably some of the Pharisees were also zealots. But uh, you had the Pharisees, who are the Bible believers. You had the Sadducees, who were those in power, who also believed in annihilationism. And then you had the Zealots, who wished for armed rebellion against Rome. They were your apocalypticists. And then you had the Essenes. And the Essenes, of course, had some overlap with the apocalypticists as well. If you read their writings... There's a lot of apocalyptic literature that did not make the Bible. You also had the Jews, which were Hellenized. These are your Jews like Josephus or Philo, who held a very metropolitan type of view, where their views intermingled with those of the Greeks. And, and when we're talking about Greek religion, there's a false conception that the Greeks were like polytheists. These Greeks worshipped many gods and many forms, but a more accurate representation is that the Greeks understood that there are multiple divine powers and worshipped those multiple divine powers. As Paul says, that what they sacrifice, they're sacrificing to demons. And when you read Christian critics, people like Papyri, you get the sense where they complain that the Jews are monotheists, but then they object that you know what, it's no different than the angels and the demons that you guys believe. So, so why can't we all just believe the same thing here? So Greek polytheism was all but dead in the time of Jesus. You'd probably have, you know, just like in any society, the people who still hold on to the ancient beliefs. But even by the time of Plato in the 6th century B.C., it was falling fast out of favor. You get this more Hellenized religion, this this more philosophical take on things. And that is what Greek religion became. It became very introspective. It became very centered on self-fulfillment and individual actualization. So in Greek religion, you had these various philosophical groups competing with each other. You had the Stoics, and you had the Platonists, and you had the Epicureans. But you also had these Greek city-state cults, these, these cults devoted to individual gods, sometimes uh, foreign gods. The Isis cult was also big. And what these cults were, they were known as mysteries. And a mystery is something that's not revealed. And so these mystery cults were centered around secret rites and secret practices and secret knowledge. If you recall, secret knowledge is also the basis of Gnosticism, which we'll touch on a little bit later. But just try to note some similarities between the beliefs of the mystery cultists, the Platonists, the Gnostics. Secret knowledge was a pinnacle of the mystery cults. This is what every true initiate tried to obtain. They went through various levels of initiation, they went through purification processes, and they tried to attain access to the inner chamber to learn the inner truth. And if you kind of read the mystery writings and you compare them to Platonism, or you compare them to the Gnostics, it all looks like it's teaching about the same thing. They all look like they're, they're teaching some sort of 
escape from the fleshly world, some sort of ascension to the one, to return to the spirit world. And you look at the writings of Plato, you look at the writings of Plotinus, and you get this idea that the mystery cults were very close to Platonism in their practices and beliefs. But of course, the mystery cults were secretive. Um, We don't precisely know what they taught and what they believed, and we're getting this through second-hand knowledge. The, The mystery cults had a lot of Christian critics. The mystery cults also had a few individuals who were said to kind of spill into the secrets of the mystery cults. Alexander writes to Aristotle that Aristotle gets on infringing the secret information in his writings. Aristotle's response, of course, is that the uninitiated just won't understand the teaching. Notice the similarities to Gnosticism, where a select elite group of people have access to the secret knowledge and are able to understand where a vast majority of people are not. So the mystery cults, they're a type of Gnosticism. We'll talk about Gnosticism again later. By the time of the first century, the Greeks themselves were practically monotheists. I mean, they had the Iliad and the Odyssey describing the acts and, you know, the ventures of the various Greek gods, but they used it in a way to illustrate other truths. They didn't actually believe that these stories actually occurred. They believed that these stories illustrate separate truths. And we read all about this type of illustration in Plutarch. Plutarch writes that Homer is the source of all knowledge about practically everything. Everything, of course, excluding the actual actions of the gods himself, which have to be rejected to stay kosher with Greek religion at the time. But you see Christian parallels in this, especially in modern Christianity, where Calvinists will take the Bible and they'll make these various stories about God and God's acts and they'll make them figurative. Oh, God didn't really repent. He's just illustrating some sort of change in process. And God didn't actually have a conversation with Abraham. God didn't have a conversation with Moses. These these back and forth conversations where you're exchanging information and talking and having give and take. No, those are meant for some other purpose. They're meant to illustrate some sort of truth. But the event themselves, it has to be rejected. You also see examples in this treatment of the Bible in early sources as well. You see it in the writings of Philo of Alexandria. He was a philosophical Jew. And he took the Bible stories and tried to pull from them these philosophical truths from the stories while basically saying that the stories didn't happen, but the philosophical truths that are illustrated by those stories, those are the points of the text. So you're making the text a myth, you're making the text symbolic, and he he didn't invent this methodology. He's following the pattern of the Greeks and how the Greeks treated the Iliad and the Odyssey, the writings of Homer. You also get some information about Greek monotheism in the writings of Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr was an early Christian, and he came from a pagan background. He cycled through the various schools of philosophy, of which Platonism was one. 
And he wrote a defense of Christianity, and in that defense of Christianity, he writes that the Christian concept of monotheism is no different than their celebrated philosophers. He's saying that the popular religion, the religion that people like, the philosophers that people like, hold the same philosophy as Christianity. So this is not an appeal to some sort of fringe cult that no one cares about. This is appeal to the popular philosophy, the popular ideas, the popular religion of the time. And that's monotheistic. Of these pagan religions, Platonism is probably the most important, the most celebrated, and had the longest lasting effects on Christianity. Platonism was started by Plato. Plato lived around 400 BC in the 5th century. And Plato's idea was that God is not any of these Greek gods. He's not Zeus, and he doesn't have these emotions where he gets into fits of rage, and he doesn't have affairs with humans. But to Plato, God was the greatest good that one can imagine. In Plato's Republic, he writes that God is unchangeable, because if God could change that he could only change for the worse, because he can't change for the better, so any change must be for the worse. And so from this idea, Plato comes up with this immutable God. And you see also in his other writings in Timaeus where he assigns to this one, uh, that's a proper term, it's used throughout Platonic writings, especially in the writings of Plotinus, where the one is the ultimate source of all being. This is the Platonistic God. It's the one. And so Plato's idea of this one is this one is timeless and eternal. And a lot of concepts of this one kind of fit together with Plato's theory of forms, where everything on earth is an imperfect copy of some sort of divine truth or some, some sort of divine pattern. And God is no different than this. That God exists in some sort of absolute timeless eternity, and he is the pattern of what we need to attain. So the Platonistic idea was the material world, that is corruption. And, you know, the further away, the more change that something has, the further corrupt it is. And so the Platonistic goal was to reverse this corruption. Their idea was that they need to uh, abstain from the physical world, uh, practice asceticism, practice introspection, and try to escape the physical body. They try to re-merge into the one, because from the one, everything uh, came out of the one. And we'll see this idea in Gnosticism, where the Gnostics create this uh, series of divine dissensions, where, where something spawns something else, who spawns something else, and and that was their way to limit God from the material world because the material world couldn't just directly from come from God because these aeons, these generations, you know, those were mitigating steps whereas God is separated from the material corruption. Yeah, the, the Platonism, it's, it's, a, it's a strange concept that we're not really familiar with in the modern world, but... Just think of it like Christianity. Uh, Christianity, the modern cr version of Christianity, you know, everyone's trying to ascend into heaven. They, they want to live a good life so that they could ultimately attain uh, eternal salvation in this heavenly world. 
in this heavenly, heavenly realm. And Platonism was basically the same thing. They had these rules and regulations and these methods and rites that you kind of had to go through in order to obtain the salvation. And their salvation was this merging with the One. You see in the writings of Augustine, he's very, very fond of these Platonists. He says that Platonism is the truest and closest thing to Christianity. He says that we should steal their stuff and use it for our own. Augustine was infatuated with the Platonists, and you read in Augustine various times where he used introspection, meditation, to try to reach the One. And he talks about these ascensions. Uh, in his confessions, there are multiple ascensions, one in Milan and one uh, before his conversion. But he believed that Christianity was an extension of these Platonistic ideas. And as such, he embraced all the Platonistic qualities of the One, and he attributed those to God of the Bible. And you see his apology for Platonism and how he treats the text of the Bible. Like, he says that God cannot speak, because speaking is change, and God's immutable. And so, instead of God speaking, there must have been some, like, parrot creature that was doing those words while Jesus was being baptized, because God himself is eternal and immutable and living outside of time and timeless. So Augustine tried to use the Bible in such a way, he, he mythalized it, he, he spiritualized it, and he used it much in the same way that the mystery cults used the legends of the various Greek gods. They took them and they pulled spiritual truths from them, but they overall rejected the text in favor of their philosophy. So Augustine represents a microcosm of the overall Christian world. Christians of all stripes, they were using these Greek concepts, they were using mystery cult um, imagery and mystery cult practices and mystery cult concepts and Platonistic concepts to create their own brands of Christianity. And most of these brands of Christianity today are known as Gnosticism. Gnosticism is about secret knowledge. It's about uh, a select elite group of people knowing secret truths. There's stuff in there about ascensions and, and only the elect, the special individual group who are specifically chosen, who understand the secret information. Those are the ones who are saved. And you can notice some similarities in that and with modern Calvinism, where modern Calvinism also has a secret selective group called the elect, you know, the, the chosen people who get to go to heaven and no one else knows or understands and they don't get to go to heaven. That's a very Gnostic idea. Whereas in the Bible, Jesus' idea was whoever listens they can come to the truth, and they can be saved. And Jesus talks about the elect, and it's not the same concept as the Calvinist elect, or it's not the same concept as the Gnostic elect. And Jesus' elect, elect are very um, self-selective. They're, they pick themselves out, and then they have to do what's right in order to be part of this group. And Jesus uses a parable of a wedding banquet where the elect continually get rejected because they're not, either they decide not to show up or they show up in the wrong method. But everyone's invited and it keeps getting expanded as people get rejected. But that's the elect to Jesus. It's, it's a self-selected group of people. 
I mean, they're invited, but a lot of times they reject in their invitation, and a lot of times, you know, even though the elect group, it expands in response to their rejection, you know, individuals can choose whether or not to be a part of this group. It's not a Gnostic concept in the least. We see a lot of patterns of Gnosticism developing in the early church, even among the apostles and Paul. We have John, and he's criticizing he's criticizing this idea that Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh. And remember, the Gnostics, they were basically Platonists, and they believed the flesh was evil. And so we had early Gnostics, such as the Valentinians, and they believed that Jesus he didn't really have a material body, or he had a, like a spiritual body, and he didn't he didn't eat and drink, and he didn't have bodily functions because you know the closer you get to the material world, the more corrupt and the more evil your flesh is. And because Jesus was an image of perfection, he transcended these bodily functions. You also have Paul writing against the Gnostics and against uh, the Platonists in his writings in Colossians where he's fighting this aestheticism and this neglect of the flesh and all of that is centered around you know the neglect of the material world and his contention in Colossians 2 and notice his argument his argument is that the fullness of God was in Jesus bodily and so this is an anti-gnostic it's an anti-platonist it's an anti you know, mystery cult idea where the flesh is evil. And he's equating the flesh uh, to godliness. You notice in modern Calvinists how they want to have some sort of hypostatic union where, you know, the, the body of Jesus isn't quite divine. It's because they still are under these assumptions, these Gnostic assumptions, where the, the material world has to be separate from the divine. And there has to be this dividing line where the two can't intermingle or coexist and that's what Paul is fighting in Colossians this Gnostic very Gnostic idea that the flesh is evil and the flesh can't be divine and the flesh isn't the end goal and Paul's teaching is that what we're looking forward to is a resurrection of the flesh and Paul actually uses that term he says a resurrection of our body and our body are in our bodily resurrection they're going to be spiritual bodies but they're still going to be bodies in Paul's theology he's not a Gnostic and he's fighting Gnosticism the last group we're going to talk about are the Christians and what happened to the Christians and how it became Platonized and Hellenized well very early on all Christians were Jews um, they just were. You read about the contentions between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. And up until Acts 15, it's pretty much dominated by the Jews. And once the Gentiles start entering the body of Christ and into fellowship with the Jews as, as followers of Christ, you get these conflicts that start arising. And, and those tensions don't arise till much later, till Paul's ministry, when Paul really starts his outreach, toward, outreach towards the Gentiles. So the Jewish contingent of Christianity, um, they eventually all died off. In 70 AD, you have this event where the Romans are suppressing another Jewish revolt, and they wipe out Jerusalem, and they kill everything and destroy everything. And about that time, Jewish Christianity is really on the decline. Uh, Christian Jews, they're either killed or they're driven back to native Judaism. 
And the Gentile dominance of the Christian religion really excels at this point. But who are the Gentile leaders? you got the people like the Justin Martyrs of the world who are coming from this very pagan background, this pagan philosophical background. And these guys become the new voice for Christianity because they're the apologists. They're the ones who have enough time and wealth in order to mount a defense in favor of Christianity to the Roman people and the Roman emperors. And keep in mind, this is all happening under the backdrop of the Gnosticism, under the Platonism that had already been seeping into the church that we read about various times in Paul's writings and in the writings of John. So by the time of Augustine, you already have a very Platonized church. I mean, Augustine didn't come up with all these things himself. In fact, his mentors, Simplicanus and Ambrose, they both were Platonists before Augustine, and they're the ones who actually encouraged Augustine to reject the Bible. And Augustine says before he read the Bible in light of Platonism, he thought the Bible was absurd. But who is it that tells him not to listen to what the Bible says? It is established Christians who are the head of churches and who are intellectual giants in the Christian world. They're the ones telling him to reject the Bible in favor of his Platonism. So in this podcast, I covered a lot of these ancient groups. I covered the different sects of Judaism and I covered Greek religion, just the basics of Greek religion. We covered the mystery cults, which had major influences, and Platonism. And then we also talked about the Gnostics and how the Gnostics were functionally an extension of both the mystery cults and of Platonism. And then how that Platonism eventually seeped into the church. As always, we encourage people to comment on this podcast. You could comment either on the Facebook page, God is Open, the companion Facebook page to the blog site, God is Open, or you can make a comment directly on the God is Open webpage under this posting. I was made to love you, I was made to find you.